2: Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Devin and Craig Hayes for the Real Change podcast series. Craig and Devin teach meditation workshops and retreats throughout North America and Europe. Devin is a mentor in Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock's Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program and teaches at Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Craig holds a PhD in Counseling Psychology works as a therapist and coach, and teaches on the online platform, Simple Habit. I also owe Craig an email. I remember that now. Uh, (laughs) Their first book, How Not to Be a Hot Mess, The Survival Guide for Modern Life, was released by Shambhala Publications in April of 2020. Welcome both of you to the Meta Hour.
3: Hi, thank you so much, Sharon. It's great to be here.
2: It's great to hear your voices. Um, And what a time to release your first book. My book is coming out September 1st, so I think it's um, the next phase of whatever you went through. So maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, your book and uh, releasing it in this time. Okay,
0: good. Well, I think one thing that I would say about the book that, Really struck me as pretty interesting is that we finished writing the book over a Mm -hmm. year ago. You know, we finished writing the book a year before COVID hit. And the book is all about how the world has gone mad. Everything seems unstable, kind of shaking, overwhelming. And if we were to write the book again today, I think we would write almost exactly the mm. same book.
3: Yeah, I think Sharon, I'd be curious to hear how it was for you to write you know, such a timely book about real change and social activism, and now being publishing it right in the mm-hmm. middle of it all. We have been surprised and also gratified to be talking about things that really matter to us at a time where everything feels heightened. Like these discussions just feel more important than ever right now
2: yeah, i mean it's it's so strange, you know, um we'll see you know how it, how it goes, but uh, <laughs> a friend was reading my book um, because he was going to excerpt it for something, and I think he liked the basic principles of it, but he said the examples basically drove him crazy, and he was extremely anxious at the mm. time. it was just the beginning of the pandemic and mm. Um, he's spoken publicly about his, uh, anxiety. And so he said he'd read those examples Mm -hmm. and he'd think that's what made you anxious. Wait till you see what's coming, you know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I went
2: went back to the publisher Mm -hmm. and I said, would it be okay with you if I wrote a new preface? So they said, okay. And
1: so Mm -hmm. I started
2: and then they took away a month from me and they said, well, we need it by this date. And so, um, Mm-hmm. I produced it and it was it was a really powerful process, even just thinking, okay, now what do I want to say? Um, right. how do I contextualize yeah. what I wrote in the book? How do I uh really link it to what's happening now? And this was before the protests, this was just post pandemic. So mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know, and then the protest happened and I thought, Well, I can't really ask for it back again, you know. <laughs> like
3: another no, present. I mean
2: afterward, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh, it just has to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. Actually, the first line of the description of your book is the dumpster fire of life rages on, but you got this.
0: Yeah, we really hope so.
2: <laughs> yeah, the dumpster fire
0: of life does seem <laughs> to continue to rage on. And I think what we're thinking in the book is. Um, how do we stay stable in the middle of all this or maybe more accurately, how do we continually regain Mm -hmm. our stability in the middle of all this? And our answer to that more or less is mindfulness is fantastic. We love mindfulness. We teach mindfulness. Uh, We've taught it to a whole range of people, especially young folks. And mindfulness alone is not enough in addition to, you know, being able to bring your awareness back to the present moment, uh, maybe back to the breath, back to the body, you need to know what you're about. You know, you need to have like a real firm sense of what matters to you and be able to root yourself in those kinds of, you know, personal ethic or, or values, and then live from that place. And when you get Knocked off balance by the crazy that is the world right now, you have to come back again and again. Not just to the body and the breath, but to that that set of you know, kind of like inner principles, moral compass. And we're thinking that as the dumpster fire of life rages, maybe you've got this because you know yourself and you know what you care about.
2: Well, it's interesting because, of course, the word mindfulness can be used in so many different ways, and it is used in so many different ways. Um, and what mm-hmm. you just added to it, I think, is actually intrinsically a part of a very classical, certainly in Asian countries, definition of mind – some Asian countries' uh, definition of mindfulness, where um it was really mm-hmm. talked about as mm-hmm. Uh, a compound it's sati sampajanya sati being mindfulness sampajanya being clear comprehension and so it's not just the process of coming back and returning and thereby getting more concentrated it's really being able to develop insight or understanding through observing all the Mm -hmm. many things that come and go and so um You know, having I I realized at one point, uh, just thinking about my life, that I've only had Asian teachers. I've actually never had a Western teacher. Mm. Um, and Mm. in some ways I have kind of like a classical education, you know, and it's funny because like if I talk to Joseph, who's Goldstein, who's some years older than I am, he went to Columbia University and he studied like the great classics in, in freshman English. And uh I went to state school, State University of New York at Buffalo, and I, some years later, and I studied Ken Kesey in freshman English. You know? And <laughs> it was only much later that I began to think, oh, you know, I might have liked to have had a more class. And then I went to India for two years and got two years of independent study credit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I got older, I thought, oh, it might have been nice to have a kind of more, I'm not glad I went to India, but to have a more classical Education. And I realized in, in dharma, in meditation, um, practice, in study, I actually have had a classical education. And, mm, and so I yeah. think what you're saying is very important uh, for a, a more comprehensive understanding of mindfulness. Yeah.
3: That was really our observation is being so involved in more mainstream or secular conversations about mindfulness. Um, we both worked at the Center for Healthy Minds for a while, and we lived in Madison, Wisconsin. So Dr. Richard Davidson's neuroscience lab—that's doing a lot of work of, in researching mindfulness in the field, in schools, and hospitals and clinics. And so, in these curricula that we're helping to develop in mainstream mindfulness circles, there's, I think, a lack of this the sampajanya part. Mm-hmm the teaching that's really about clear seeing and understanding who we are and what we're about and what's really happening right now. And so in some ways, this book is actually an attempt to fill that void in the mainstream conversation about practice, that it's not just this technique that helps us stay in the present moment, but it comes with all of these other contemplations and guidelines about what a meaningful life really means.
2: In working um, on my book, I was speaking with activists, with teachers, with social change agents, and uh, people in creative fields, trying to understand the different Mm. ways that folks can live an engaged life, whether the change they're seeking to work on is through activism or art or family or systems change or whatever. And your book, I know, talks a lot about these subjects. So I'm wondering if you could say, uh, you know, I've talked about them all at once, but uh, pick one or two. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, I think the, for us, it comes down, you know, so the book is arranged around six chapters. The first one is Meditate. Um, We think it's a great idea to meditate. And then, like I said, we say mindfulness alone is not enough. And then we present um, these five principles, which we're drawing from Buddhist teachings. They're called the precepts in the Buddhist teachings. And the way that we frame them is kind of like in a playful, secular way. So we call them don't be a jerk. Give a little. Say what's true. Make sex good and stay clear. And so we go through these chapters and and we kind of talk about these different themes. But what it comes down to again and again is that most of us, and especially those of us who are reading books like this book or your book or who are listening to this podcast, we want to live a meaningful life. And we want to do good in the world. And yet we can get very overwhelmed. You know, we can get overwhelmed by kind of like the blizzard of information and ideas and news reports and just the kind of difficulties that we run into in our personal lives and our political lives. And we need some kind of a basic framework that we can root into. Like we, and when you were talking, I think we were just reading about your book, Sharon, you talk about agency right? Like the sense of agency. Well, how do we develop agency? For Devin and for me, I think it's by coming back to this full organism that is alive right here, knowing our bodies, knowing our hearts, and then knowing like what are our core principles. And when we really know that there's a tremendous energy uh, and almost like a, a power that we move into in ourselves and in our lives. And from that sense of aliveness and I think connection, then we can begin to make the kinds of changes that we want to see in the world. And so, Devin and I do a lot of one on one mentoring. And I talk to quite a few people who are activists and organizers. And the thing that we come back to again and again, I would say two themes. One is, I don't really love the words self-care, but uh, maybe the sense of caring, you know, this gentleness toward ourselves and our experience. That's one main theme Maybe we call it self-care for now. And then the other, the other theme is um, living from these core values in a way that energizes the situation. Um, so instead of getting run around by all the details of your day, kind of staying stable and rooted in these these frameworks that are most important to you, that are most connected
2: to you for your heart and mind. Well, we're going to have to go through those presets because they were so interesting. But before we do, there's a, um, uh, I guess it was my most well, I can say my most recent book, the book I wrote before Real Change, Real Love. Um, I was working on a chapter about loving oneself, and it came down to living an ethical life, basically, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. that is the source mm-hmm. of such untold self respect and happiness. And, and because of my Buddhist background, mm-hmm. I think uh, in the habit, of um when i'm trying to think something through i start with the problem you know if i'm trying to understand Mm -hmm. loving kindness i might start with thinking of fear which is said to be the opposite you know and really trying to feel my Mm -hmm. way into that terrain so um you know the opposite of that kind of self-respect is clearly you know tremendous worry and uh paranoia and anxiety and uh, Mm -hmm. whether you realize it in the act of committing whatever or not you are really planting the seed for um some pretty painful mind states and and uh i think anybody who's gone through really strong introspection whether it's psychotherapy or meditation or whatever sees that you know there's just a kind of residue and um and so the uh path is not like the conventional path, you know, like um get a better wardrobe, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> you know, it, it's <laughs> like look at how you live in, you know, there's so much possibility mm-hmm. for really feeling a lot happier. Mm-hmm. Uh and respecting mm-hmm, yourself yeah. a lot more. And I, I remember an editor I was working with sort of looked at me quizzically like, "Really? You think this is the direction you want mm-hmm. to go in?" Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. let's do this one. So tell us more about the precepts and maybe each precept.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think for me also my exploration with the precepts began with a lot of self-criticism. Yeah. And just this a little bit of a cringe even when they came up, because my mind would so often go to the ways I was falling short or maybe it was self-doubt, or this kind of black and white thinking, like, I have to do it this way, otherwise I'm doomed. Um, And so the way that we tried to frame these, maybe in more colloquial language, or the sense of like, don't be a jerk and say what's true, there are things that feel like um, they're pointing towards what's already here in terms of goodness. And for me, I think I needed to sort of train my negativity bias to lean more into the goodness, the, the caring, the inspiration, my good intentions that I just so often overlooked. Mm-hmm. So like in the don't be a jerk chapter, we start with saying, you know, most of us are probably living basically upright lives already. Like it's pretty rare, I think, that we do harm intentionally. And so just kind of resting on that foundation of there's so much good sincerity here. And then from there, it can actually be inspiring to look at, oh, there's actually more goodness and well-being that comes when I'm considering others, when I'm really oriented towards this place of kindness rather than a place of, of lack or fear. So we're trying to talk about the precepts in a way that feels um, like onward leading and uplifting and energizing rather than this sort of um, moralistic, like, this is how we should be doing it. Um, so that's our basic frame. Um, we go back and forth. Like Craig wrote the don't be a I jerk think- chapter because he's had more experiences in being yeah. a jerk than I I'm have. I'm just better at it. Yes, I mean- <laughs> <is>, It's true. <laughs> not say that. Um, and then I wrote about, um, well, my chapter was give a little, because being generous has been actually really a long-term training for me, continues to be. Um, and then Craig goes into why speech. So we call that chapter, say what's true, but really basic and traditional teachings about, um, you know, asking these four questions before we open our mouths um, about like, is what I'm about to say, is it timely, Is it helpful? Is it kind? Is it true? Um, And kind of all the way through, we tell these stories about the ways that we've messed up, um, you know, insights and inspiring teachers we've had. Um, So, yeah, we just try to make it a little bit more playful and accessible. Um, I wrote the Make Sex Good chapter, which is definitely the hardest one to write about. I uh, don't have a lot of experience writing about sex or even talking about it, to be honest. But I think um, this one for me was probably the most transformative because I found that by taking it actually into the wider view of our culture and society, not just my personal story and the kind of personal shame and um, insecurities that I've experienced, but noticing how in dominant culture, there are these narratives that actually really run against the grain in terms of having meaningful valuable sex in our lives. So I talk about the trinity of bad sex which is patriarchy, objectification and consumerism. This sense of men come first, everybody else comes after. Um, objectification being this leaving ourselves and like looking outside of ourselves back in with these judgy eyes. Um, a kind of disembodied gaze and then consumerism being like our bodies are commodities that are meant to be consumed. Um and those narratives really are difficult when we're trying to be intimate with someone else. They really get in the way. And so um in the chapter it was interesting to explore like how do I bring my values, what I really most care about in terms of embodiment and being alive and connecting to someone Um, How do I bring that even into this area that sometimes feels taboo and pretty sensitive and like easier just not to talk about it. So that was just an interesting practice to write that Mm. chapter. Um, And then, yeah, the last chapter is Craig's and this one it's, we call it stay clear. It's traditionally about not getting intoxicated, but I think overall the message of the book is about staying clear about who we are, what we care about, and then that kind of being the prerequisite for then having the agency to act in the world.
2: Thank you. Let's go to speech for a moment uh, because, Mm -hmm. you know, clearly we live in a time with a lot of hateful speech and and even short of that, just Mm -hmm. polarized speech and uh, lack Mm -hmm. of listening and so on. People ask me all the time, so I'm going to ask you. What can be done about that?
0: <laughs> right. Well, maybe I'll just start by saying that speech continues. You know, 25 years into my Dharma practice, um, making Dharma really the center of my life for this whole time. Speech continues to be possibly the most challenging part of my own dharma practice and my own life practice it i love it i I find it incredibly enriching and interesting and joyful to be aware and attentive to my own speech and ambiguous and difficult um and i kind of like fall off the wagon with speech
3: which is true i can i can attest
0: (laughs) kind of on the daily (laughs) i can attest to
3: this
0: (laughs) so thank you honey so (laughs) i think that it's speeches is the um like the crucible of spiritual practice for me and i i know i think that i'm in balance when i'm speaking pretty wisely and by wisely i really mean that when i when i feel my body. When I, when I feel into this kind of column of awareness that runs from my belly to my heart and up my throat, when, when that feels in alignment, and it feels um, awake and relaxed, and I'm speaking, it, feel, it just feels so good. And, and I feel like I'm connected with other people, and I'm connected with myself, and I'm kind of connected with a, a deeper truth that I'm living in. And then when I get, I, I get contracted or I get shaken um, and my speech goes out of whack, that, that feeling in my body is like a mild form of torture mm-hmm. <laughs> for me. You know, I can really feel like, oh, and I'm not, I'm not in alignment right now. I'm not in balance right now. And uh, I'm from New York. So it's usually really obvious to other people when I'm not mm-hmm. in alignment or in balance, you know, I can read the room and be like, Oh, other people are definitely noticing this <laughs> mm-hmm. too. Uh, but it's just so, I don't know. I, I feel that I'm with speech. I'm almost always at my edge in practice. I'm all, I'm so often noticing my own maybe shortcomings Uh, and limitations. And at the same time, I think what's different in my practice is that early on, like Devin was talking about, I felt a lot of shame about my limitations and my difficulties. I don't really feel that anymore. You know, I actually feel kind of, um, kind of tender Toward myself, or kind of like accepting, like, "Oh my gosh, really?" (laughs) I mean, it's funny in a way how bad I am at this, especially since I'm supposed to be telling other people how they might want to do this. But I can't pretend. And to me, there's there's something kind of like delightful and edgy and almost fun about just being on this like live wire of authenticity.
3: Well, it's interesting actually just hearing you talk because so Craig went through this phase that he talks about in the book of just really believing in raw authenticity as the most important thing. So he would come into the room and just sort of all this self-disclosure and saying exactly what was on his (laughs) mind, you know, in this very, um, What was the lineage that you talked about in the book? It's kind of
0: the human potential movement.
3: Right, like the human potential movement. He was in that phase when I met him. And I think what we're learning over time, and this is maybe part of the book's message too, is like dharma practice does allow for a deeper level of authenticity. You know, like the more one practices, I think the more human one gets. Like all of our little um our strategies and our ways of performing or trying to manipulate ourselves in the situation those kind of drop away and there's this real uh like connection with authenticity and I see this in my respected teachers I see this in Joseph I see this in Mingyur Rinpoche I see this in you Sharon um but and yet I think when it's, when there's mindfulness and there's Sampajanya, this awareness of the precepts, and there's all of this inclining the mind towards goodness and what's wholesome. There's also a kind of, um, of uprightness that's authentic and also appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's like an appropriate response for Mm -hmm. the moment. So maybe my inner experience, my raw authenticity is something that's that's happening inside and the environment is something different and we have this wisdom this deepening wisdom that can resonate with and align with the situation so that what comes out of our mouths and how we act is actually much more appropriate it's like the inside is aligned with the outside in a way that takes a wis- takes wisdom not just raw authenticity but also like the lived experience of presence and then of knowing ah oh, this is the right thing to say in this moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Can I tell a story and then ask your opinion? Sure, Jane? of course. <laughs> I think what's um, what's so interesting about speech is that it's it's ambiguous. It's actually quite difficult to know what to say and what the appropriate response is in the different moments of our lives. For example, so my whole family lives in New York. Still, I live in Devon's hometown in, in Oregon. And I was on the phone with my father on Sunday. So my father is you know, about 75 years old, just had a knee surgery. He's in pretty good health, but not quite as vital as he usually is. And he's going to a chiropractor for treatments for his knee, and it's really helping him. But he told me that his chiropractor is not wearing a mask oh. during the treatments. So my father is wearing a mask, but his chiropractor mm-hmm. is not. And I heard that and I said, wow, that really worries me. Uh, I really would like him to wear a mask, not just for you, Mm -hmm. but for the probably dozens of people that are coming through his office every day. You know, do you think it would be okay? Would you mind if I called this chiropractor and asked him to wear a mask? And, uh, My father said, you know, I'm not so sure about that because I'm going in there every day. And uh, I said, you know, I really think this is important because, you know, he could be who knows the number of people he's Mm -hmm. seeing. He could end up being some kind of, you know, super spreader Mm -hmm. or something like this. I I really think we want to act here. And so I talked to my with my father about it and we decided together that I would call and leave an anonymous message. And that I would actually say to the chiropractor, hey, and if if you don't start wearing a mask, I am probably going to report you to the health department, Mm -hmm. you know. So I called and I left. I was really conscious. I was really with my intentions of trying to be helpful and truthful and timely and appropriate. And I left this message that I think was very friendly, but it had some teeth, you know, which was if you don't start doing this behavior for the public good, I'm going to call the health department. Okay. The chiropractor has caller ID. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have the same name not only as my same last name not only as my father, but I have the same last name as my brother. My brother is in chiropractic school oh. and he's interning with this chiropractor. Oh, the path <laughs> so my brother texts me and he says, why are you leaving? Th- why are you leaving threatening messages from my mentor? Mm. And so then I, you know, I had to talk with my brother and I agreed that I would, I would drop this. Like I wouldn't make this a crusade. You know, I would not continue to leave threatening messages for his Mm -hmm. mentor. But to me, every every step of the way is ambiguous, including the last step where I've now decided that out of family loyalty, I will not pursue this. I will let this person continue to function in his profession without a mask. Is that helpful? Right? Is that right speech? So... What do you think, Sharon? I mean, was it right speech to, to leave this voicemail in which I threatened I threaten a health professional? <laughs> Is it then right speech to shut up So because I'm loyal to my brother? Well, you I'm kind of
2: curious about what he would say if somebody asks him to wear a mask. He just says, no, I don't do that.
0: So my brother tells me that if a person specifically asks him to wear a mask, he'll put mm-hmm. one on. And if nobody says anything, he goes through his day without wearing one.
2: Well, you know, I probably would have responded differently. I would have gotten your father out of that practice immediately uh, Mm -hmm. to the best of my Mm -hmm. ability, you know, if I was his son. Uh, Your brother is a complication. But uh, Mm -hmm. I would just say, you know, this is not uh, it's not safe and it's not right, I think. And I think he should have. Told him, you know, I'm leaving because uh I just feel uneasy about you not wearing a mask. And I was too whatever, shy or intimidated to ask. But you know, the more I think about it, it's just not the practice for me. And I would have just gotten out of there. And Mm -hmm. whether to report Mm -hmm. him or not, I mean, without the threat, you know. Um, you know, I, I just have to say I did some work with ambulance drivers. And EMT people, because mm-hmm. so much of my, it's like the teaching of my heart is really often involved in, with caregivers of some kind in these days. That means right. a lot of medical personnel. And mm-hmm. so um, I was talking to the organizer before that afternoon and I said, what do you think would be helpful? Like, what do you, what approach, you know, do you think I should take? What do you think they want to hear? And she said, you know, I talked to those ambulance drivers and they are so angry. You're so angry. They they oh. walk around, they see people without masks, and they are so angry. And I said, oh, wow. you know, well, if I were an ambulance driver, I get that, you know, I'd look at people and I think, ten more days. Your life may be in oh. my hands and my life might be in your hands. You know, I know medical mm. personnel who've died, um, working in the emergency room. I mean, this is not a slight thing. And so, uh, I, you know, I would not, I wouldn't even feel like the healing energy, you know, of somebody who uh, was not thinking of those EMT people, you know. And so Mm. I just, I would have gone. And what your brother does is another question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not prepared to speak on that, you know, but.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I, I mean, I think this is where we live, yeah, yeah. right? It's, it's nice to write about these things. And it's very important to have guidelines and principles. And yet we live in continual ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And I think these kinds of conversations mm-hmm. and having community that we can be in dialogue with uh, that hold similar you know, principles, This is how we actually practice, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. moment by moment. How do we, how do we figure out really the appropriate response to this new, truly bizarre situation? And then tomorrow, the next truly bizarre and unique situation. And then the next day and then Mm -hmm. the next
2: day. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, it's, that's the living spirituality, you know, rather than a kind of glib. Um, formula formula for how to live you know it's like it's not easy and, and it, it demands a lot of us to really figure it out but I also think there's shades of ambiguity you know it's sometimes we really do have a sense of the right course and we just don't want to go there you know uh, mm. and other times you know you're balancing a lot of things you're a homeowner and you've got termites and you're you know to figure <laughs> yeah. out like mm-hmm. how to make it work, you know? And uh you know, there's a lot of life that's like that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think for me one of the biggest insights during this whole period has been um working with anger. And I think you have a chapter in your book about this. I'm looking forward to reading it cuz I love I think you say it's like when anger transforms into that's courage. Right. Yeah. Um And I think I've noticed in my own practice, there is a habit, and this probably comes from white dominant culture conditioning around um, really not, it's not okay to feel angry. Like anger is a defilement. I should not feel that way. I should be doing loving kindness or somehow transforming it to Mm -hmm. feel wholesome. And yet, wow, I've had just so many days where rage really was the predominant emotion, Um, learning how to work with it in a different way. And it's been quite interesting actually to change my attitude about it and to see, oh, there's so much energy in this anger. And there's actually a kind of just, you know, a lot of it is about Mm -hmm. justice. It's about seeing injustice and then the natural response of the heart, because I think I care, there's just, Rage mm-hmm. that comes, and I do think. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about this. I think that anger has the potential for really powerful action, mm-hmm. and that it can be a yeah. Maybe courage is a good word for me. It's been um, it's been like clear seeing that anger has a kind of clarity in it that sees things truly mm-hmm. and from that place i think when it's also measured with a kind of presence of mind and maybe enough wisdom to know it's appropriate it can be a powerful change agent mm-hmm. like oh i actually need this kind of rage in order to have the courage to speak truth mm-hmm. to power or to talk about issues that feel scary to talk about or even to be willing to mess up and and make a mistake mm-hmm because I'm moving from this place of really deeply caring so much.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think anger is, it's like a double-edged sword. And in, in some ways it does have that kind of clear incisiveness and a willingness to speak. And we know that just from daily life. Sometimes it's like the angriest person in the room in the meeting and that's willing to say, look at that problem. When everyone else is carefully looking mm-hmm. in the other direction, you know, mm-hmm. so There's that, but there's also a kind of incredible delusion sometimes in anger. I mean, I've seen that on my own. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, um, where it's like, if you think about the last time you were really, really angry at yourself, it's not a time where you also think, (laughs) you know, I did five great things same morning, right? Five great things, (laughs) they're gone. They're just wiped out. So, uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure how to describe the um, path from one kind of anger to the other kind of anger, but. Uh, maybe you can mm-hmm. but the um you know when you're in that deluded state, then options disappear, uh, mm-hmm. everything is is really that's mm-hmm. really like the Buddhist psychological description of tunnel vision, you know, and you get yep. stuck. Mm-hmm. but there is that yep. other kind of anger you know or that other aspect to anger where um it's right. that cutting through incisive willingness to uh point at difficulty mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah, I I like that you're I like this
0: this kind of parsing of it into two kinds of anger. Um, I'm also looking forward to reading Lama Rod's book, which I haven't gotten yet, Love and Rage, where I've heard some interviews where he's talking about these things. I think for me, it's it's a it's a question of stickiness. You know, like when my anger gets sticky Mm. and magnetic and it starts to pull everything into it and cloud my vision, that feels unwholesome. However, you know, Devin and I now have been on this uh, racial justice and racial awareness kind of journey for a decade. You know, I wrote my dissertation about um, the experiences of people of color in primarily white meditation Mm -hmm. communities. Um, Devin has studied quite a bit. Uh, You know, she went through CDL4, the community Dharma leaders training at Spirit Rock with Larry Yang and Gina Mm -hmm. Sharp. And, you know, we had this kind of wake up moment, maybe back in 2013, something like that, 2012. And it just is accompanied by anger. There's this kind of heat to it. Of I can't believe it's this way. And it and it cannot stay this way, which is energizing. That flash is very is, uh, is enlivening, it's energizing, um, it's motivating. And uh, for me, the question is: do I get stuck? Right? So, like a flash of anger. When I when I meet injustice, when I see injustice, and I have that sense of. A kind of like white hot flash that can be very wholesome. Then there are the moments of like, does it get stuck, and does it become habituated, and do I do I get judgmental? And um, the process of being socially engaged for me has been playing between these polarities, between these two kinds of anger like the sometimes the healthy anger or the motivated anger or even like a loving anger and then habituated states of mind taking over and almost um almost like what's the word appropriating that anger in a way that cuts off my connection to other people and even can Interfere with the change work
2: that needs to happen. I wonder if that's reflected in language. You know, like um, if we were just to listen to the story we are telling about uh, <laughs> the incidents, the outrage, the difficulty, the challenge. I think it would be interesting. Like, or, or if it's a person, you know, we're saying you never and you never will, yeah, <laughs> never get better. You know about this. It's, I mean that's indicative of kind of stuckness, isn't it?
3: Um, mm-hmm. As yeah. to yeah.
2: either you know this is wrong or to get really you know PC about it. Like I felt hurt <laughs> when you said that, mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know, and uh, thinking in a more you know political level, it would be um, people shouldn't have to live this way or. Or is wrong, or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, yeah, but you know, I'm a child of the '60s. I remember those college protests too. In fact, I went back to Buffalo where I went to school uh, last fall, and uh, my friend gave me a, a tour of the campus. And uh, and he he had gone to law school there, and uh, I, I pointed at something. A lot had changed, but I, I pointed at something. And he said, "I was tear gassed here." And then, Mm -hmm. oh, I remember protesting over there, you know, and, um, you know, and and so there there was not um, an idea of um, reconciliation or, uh, you know, uh, some kind of story, some kind of narrative that could be more inclusive. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was, it was really pretty stark. So how did you two meet? I'm actually interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: my goodness. How we met. So Craig really loves this story, um, but I'll tell, I'll tell it. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so um, I just finished a master's degree in writing, actually. Oh. I've been living in D.C., And I'm not really a city girl. I like living in the mountains. And I had really, I loved writing school, but I really wanted to do Dharma full time. And so um, I had written about Buddhism, but I was so happy to move from Washington, DC to a retreat center in Colorado. It's really beautiful, high elevation, Tibetan Buddhist retreat center. And I was going to be the program manager there, so really um, be steeped in Dharma retreats and community. There were maybe 20 or 30 of us living and working there at the time, and um, just really looking forward to being kind of independent on my own in the Dharma and doing a lot of practice. And so I was only two weeks into my time there when my best friend at the time was also living and working at this retreat center, and she um, she told me on we were going for a hike, and she said, "Hey, I met somebody online," and I was sort of teasing her, like, "Really? You have an online profile and you're dating online? And that's so funny." We're right in the middle of nowhere here. And um, and she said, yeah, I know, but he looks kind of interesting. He's our age. He's really into the Dharma. He also lives at a retreat center about three hours away. And he invited me to go meet him, but I'm worried. I don't really know who this guy is. And would you come <laughs> and just make sure he's legit? <laughs> and I said, yeah, totally. I'm independent and free and totally happy to support dating, but really not into dating myself right now. So I was happy to be their third wheel. And then, of course, what happens is we arrive at Crestone Mountain Zen Center where Kai was living. And just the very moment when he walked up to greet us, I was like, uh oh. Ah. This is going to be awkward. Because, yeah, there was kind of a spark there actually from the very beginning. And then we, you know, that, that first evening was really interesting because we were all coming from these different traditions. Like he was practicing Zen, I was really into, um, I was studying Vajrayana and also Insight Meditation, but reading the Dharma through like nature writers, and so interested in practicing outdoors and wilderness practice. And and then my friend Beth was really hardcore Tibetan Buddhist. She was planning this three year retreat, solitary three year retreat, and so we had all of these really interesting Dharma conversations. And by the end of the evening, uh, it was pretty clear that Craig and I had chemistry. Um, maybe a little bit more chemistry than Craig and Beth had. So we went through an awkward phase for sure. Yeah, we
0: won't tell that part of the story. That was just a very awkward phase. Just a very awkward.
3: (laughs) But, you know, we actually, it ended up all good. We invited her to our wedding. (laughs) She was actually in her three-year retreat when we got married. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, she ended up becoming a psychotherapist and and we're all really, really good friends now. Mm -hmm. So that's our story.
2: And how did you each become interested in meditation practice?
0: Well, f- we both got involved very young by Western standards for me, I was sixteen, and uh I was a, certainly the most difficult point in my life. Uh, I was very anxious. Living, um, I would say my external circumstances were very, very chaotic. My my mother had gone through an incredibly painful financial crisis uh, where she lost her business and lost the house that we were living in together and uh, went bankrupt and became quite alcoholic. Um, yeah, she's sober now. She's been sober for a few years, but if she went through a period of real crisis, that happened to coincide with my early teenage years. And I moved in with my father and he, his family was also in a crisis that involved a lot of alcohol and drugs and uh, difficult, difficult behaviors. And so I felt at the time, that there was nobody to look to for, uh, guidance and into that situation dropped this book. Uh, it's by Joseph Goldstein. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's called Insight Meditation, and I read it in the suburbs of New York City. in 1994, so there, no, no one had ever mentioned meditation to me. You know, I had no idea. And the moment that I even read the first chapter of this book, I just thought, "This is me. This is this is what I'll do." And um, I, th- I, t- I took the I took the pillows from my bed in my bedroom and just put them on the ground and crossed my legs and just started sitting. And, uh, from there, you know, the first thing that happened was I realized my mind is crazy. Mm Um, and I went looking for a teacher and I found one. And so I I ended up, um, practicing with this really far out, um, Vipassana teacher who was living in upstate New York outside Binghamton in this little farmhouse, (laughs) dairy country i've practiced with him really really closely and went you know did long retreats at his house just this little farmhouse and you know by the time i graduated from college i'd done like a month-long retreat a five-month retreat and three two-month wow. retreats and then i just realized i want to make this my whole life and so i'm i moved into a zen monastery and i was there for five years before i met Devin.
3: Yeah, my story is a little different, although there's some parallels. Um, I was a pretty different teenager. You know, Craig was like getting high and playing rock and roll music and going to war with his stepmom. And um, I was growing up here in Ashland, Oregon, and in a pretty uh, like sheltered and nourishing environment. I was an only child, really good parents who had had full lives before I was born. My parents were older. And it's interesting. I I had a really healthy upbringing, and yet I was a really sensitive kid and very uh, conscientious about how I was doing in school and and totally interested in getting approval. <laughs> like that was my main goal was getting straight A's and making sure I was okay and you know the external regard was really important and so um, that ended up in quite a lot of anxiety. And always kind of having this sense of like, there's got to be more to life than just having success in school, marrying somebody, finding a good house, and then having a family like that never felt like the formula that led to really deep lasting well being for me. Um, And so I kind of hit rock bottom in my freshman year of college was Over exercising, under eating, really overcommitted. I was on the crew team. Um, I was in a sorority. Like all these things, just sort of all came crashing down over Christmas break, and had a big meltdown with my family. And um, my mom would just started reading this book by Pema Chodron (laughs) called "When Things Fall Apart," and um, and she gave it to me. And so similar to Craig, when I read it, it just felt like totally coming home. Um, she was saying the things that I had intuited as a young person, you know, about how we just, we get on this hamster wheel and we're always trying to get the perfect situation, get the perfect relationship or the perfect house or the perfect major, or whatever it is. And then I can rest and be happy. And I just saw how I could live my whole life on that hamster wheel. And the deep truth of just being with things in their imperfect, very human way in the present moment felt like just such an obvious recommendation for happiness. And so, yeah, I started meditating on my own, Um, also knew I needed a teacher and uh, was really lucky that these two women who had just come out of three-year retreat as I was finishing college, they moved here to Ashland and I met them and took refuge and then really just leaped in you know went on pilgrimage to asia and really started starting studying seriously from then on
2: wow thank you thank you both so i'm wondering um to close our conversation if one or both of you uh would lead us in a meditation practice
3: yeah i'd love to so wherever you are you can find a comfortable posture And this could be sitting upright, could also be standing, or maybe you're going for a walk. You can do this while you're moving as well. Just finding a sense of ease in your body. And also a kind of uprightness, maybe even dignity in your posture. And then perhaps taking a deep breath. I'm just letting the breath bring you right here. Just right into the present moment in your body. Maybe just taking a couple of moments to feel your body from the inside out. So noticing temperature. Or maybe feeling weight, groundedness, maybe feeling the movement of your breath, and just feeling the aliveness that's here right now in your body. And then from this place, this sense of warm attention, of embodied presence, just invite you to look at your own good qualities. So often we spend our time looking at what's wrong with us or what we need to somehow improve or fix. But in this practice, you need just a gentle inclination Towards what's already here. You might spend a little bit of time just feeling into your heart center. And noticing what's here. Maybe you have a gentle sense of kindness right now. Or even just the curiosity and interest you have in listening to these conversations. Maybe you're an honest person. Maybe you care about integrity or creativity or really doing good in the world. Just noticing how it feels to incline towards your good qualities. And of course, it might feel maybe a little awkward or... Maybe you're feeling numb or running up against some edge. That's totally fine. But the idea in this practice is just to gently train to see the good that's already here. Often when we take stock of this, there's a kind of energy to move from this place of goodness, of sincerity, what we really care about. Well, maybe just as we come to the end of this practice, you might choose one of these qualities. And just imagine yourself moving from this place, motivated by kindness or honesty or clarity or your caring heart. And just see yourself keeping this quality in mind as you move back into your day, into the world staying in touch with this inside.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for, for leading us in that way. And thank you so much for yeah. joining me today.
3: You're
2: so thank mm. you. Yeah.
3: It's been so fun.
2: And thank you all for listening. To learn more about Craig and Devin's work, visit www.DevinandCraigHayes. That's D-E-V-O-N-A-N-D. C-R-A-I-G-H-A-S-E dot com. And you can also get a copy of their book, How to Not Be a Hot Mess, which is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. This has been the Real Change series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.